Uh, it's an honor to be here. Uh, thank you, Pastor Bob, for this opportunity. Um, so, um, yes, I was here, and I have a, chat, a sermon theme this time, though. Um, and the ser- sermon theme is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And you'll see kind of why I get to that towards the end of this. Uh, but, and there's three parts to this. So the three parts are my story, my testimony, you could say, and major lessons I've learned from experience and what the Bible's taught me, and then also to present you with a challenge. So... Um, This is a picture of my family, and I put this up here because it's the huge part of my story, and the fact that I can put that picture up there is actually a miracle in itself. So that's my wife Lois on the left side of me there, and we've been together since eighth grade. And we, uh, so you could say we're more than high school sweethearts, and it's our two grandchildren, Dustin and Kylie, that we're holding, and to the right of me over there, which would actually be my left in the picture, but uh, that would be my son-in-law, Dave, and he's holding Zaya, and behind him is uh, my daughter, Jamie, which is a huge part of this story. Uh, She's holding Zaya, and they are foster parents. Uh, Just took possession of these uh, foster twins in uh, January. They're now going on 11 months old. Last year, they had two horrible failed adoptions, and then all of a sudden the Lord just kind of opened up a door and dropped these kids into it. And my daughter Jamie has her arm around Anna, who is my step-granddaughter, daughter of Dave, and she's, my big head's in the way, but she's actually pregnant in this picture, and the baby has been born, so the person missing in this picture is Camden. That's her husband, uh, Jake, and then my daughter Jenny and JD, who live in Colorado, which is actually part of this story too, so... So on with that story. Uh, I was raised in the method. I would like to say that Lois is not here with me today. She typically comes when I speak, but she's actually out in Colorado because Dustin was in his first play uh, yesterday, and Grandma wanted to be a part of it. So, but I was uh, raised in the Methodist Church, baptized in infancy, uh, attended Sunday school, church camp. You know, I was a regular attendee at church. I was confirmed in the Methodist Church. Uh, did. Ch- church council's been active in the leadership of our church, uh, was on a building committee when we did a major expansion, taught uh, high school, Sunday school, and so I have been an active participant in knowing the church world. But as you'll find out, it wasn't until 2005 that I actually figured out that I was, didn't know the Lord at all. And I've always been an ambitious guy. I'm not sure where that came from, uh, but I've never been content to just sit still. I've always had to be moving forward, chasing that dream. And that turned into me becoming a workaholic in the 1990s and was helping, trying to build up the business that I was working for, BJ's TV and Appliance, because I thought I was eventually going to purchase that business. And But then out of that kind of blossomed another opportunity for Lois and I to start our own business, Fearing Satellite and Sound, Inc., in 1997, which is now today Fearing's Audio Video Security. And, of course, that didn't help my workaholism any. It just entrenched it even more. Because when you're starting a business, it's all about getting it off the ground and, you know, 60, 70, 80-hour weeks were the norm. 
Then in 2000, my whole house of cards that I had kind of built came tumbling down when uh, we found out that our oldest daughter, Jamie, had been uh, sexually molested throughout much of her high school years by the father of the family she babysat for. And she'd, you know, we'd saw that some things were going pretty dark in her life, and we'd question her every once in a while, you know, well, Jamie, what's going on? Is there something we should know about? And, and she'd always put on a good front, no, everything's fine, and um, so we'd let it go at that. But then she was a sophomore at UW-Whitewater, and it was not going well there, and she came home at Christmas break and just laid it all out to Lois. And we started to understand that we had a problem on our hands, and she had to, to deal with this. And, and so then, on, you know, she, we, we got her into some counseling, but the, there was counselor changes, and it just wasn't working for us, so she dropped out of that. And then in 2002, to add insult to injury, Jamie and her uh, boyfriend at that time were uh, out at a party out in uh, Adams County, and the boonies, and, and Jamie was the designated driver, and she, did, she didn't drink. She stayed sober just like you're supposed to, but she didn't know the roads real well, and on their way home that night, she missed a stop sign and blew through the stop sign and hit a guy broadside and killed him. And so that just really uh, added to the whole uh, thing that was going on in her life. It was pretty much a train wreck, and we were doing what we could to get by, and uh, then in the summer of 2005, business was going really well, and our income was going up, and I had always wanted to own a home on a lake. I'd grown up boating a lot and skiing and uh, inner tubing out on uh, Lake Redstone and Reedsburg, where we were born and raised, and, and always wanted, had that planted in me to want to have a home on a lake, and... We'd been doing all our boating at that time out of Lake Wisconsin, so we started looking for homes on Lake Wisconsin and quickly found out that even though we were in a better financial position, we still really couldn't afford the kind of home we wanted on Lake Wisconsin, so we just kind of said, you know what, it just wasn't meant to be. But shortly after we gave up the search on Lake Wisconsin, our realtor called us and said, you know, I know that uh, you were look, really had your heart set on Lake Wisconsin, but there is a homecoming available. It's going to go on the market on Swan Lake, and I think you really ought to take a look at it. And so we're out, uh, um, we, we, we go in, and she says, I got a home on South Swan Lake. And so we went and we saw, we we're kind of skeptical, but the minute we walked in the front door, we knew that this was the home that it was meant to be. And so we made an offer on it, but it was contingent on the sale of our home. And so it wasn't an immediate takeover of this house. But during the interim, um, there was the opportunity to go out to the home when the home inspector was going to do a home inspection of it. So I went out with him, and I was standing on the deck of this home while he was doing the home inspection. And I actually have a picture of our deck, and those plants over on the left-hand side are about where I was standing. And I remember just, I'm looking out over the lake while I'm standing there, and I get this sinking feeling. Because I realized I'm 48 years old, and now all of my dreams have come true. What am I going to do now? What am I going to chase now? And I just had this emptiness inside me. And, but I know that was divinely inspired, because it was at that very same time that our church was uh, getting ready to do the fall stewardship campaign, and they asked Lois and I to co-chair the fall stewardship campaign. 
And we readily agreed because that was right up our alley. And But one of the things that had always been the practice of the past was the stewardship chairs would uh, give their... Uh, always get up... The stewardship campaign was usually three to four weeks long, and during that, the stewardship... Uh, chairman would get up and give a message on stewardship. And in the past, all they'd done is put up spreadsheets. I mean, you want to talk about demotivating, uh, spreadsheets can really demotivate you. So I was about giving and givings up, givings down, and, and I hated that. And so this was my opportunity to do just something different. So I decided that I was going to give a message on what Jesus had to say about stewardship and actually give more of a sermon type. And the problem with that is, is that I didn't really have a clue where to go in the Bible. I had never really taken, made any effort to really get into the Bible and study it. So the only teaching I had gotten was what I heard from the pastor on Sundays. And so what do you do? You know, this was the time of the internet, but there was, still wasn't Google at that point in time, but there was MSN. So I went on the internet and I searched stewardship. And ended up on a site that was by Rick Warren, and he was talking about the story of the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler, uh, if you don't know the story, it's in Matthew 19, and the rich young ruler says to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the first thing Jesus says to him is, why do you call me good? There is no one good but God alone. And that should have been a a message to me, but that just kind of went right over my head. But Jesus says to him, well, obey the commandments, and he gives the last six, and not the first four. And the young man says, well, I've obeyed them since my childhood. And Jesus said, well, you lack one thing. Go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And it says that the rich young man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And that just hit me like a ton of bricks. Because I'm about ready to take possession of this beautiful home on a lake. And he's telling this guy sell everything you own, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And first time in my life, I had a sense that I was not right with God. And it started to kind of haunt me. Now, I went and I did the sermon on the, uh, the, uh, the message for Consecration Sunday on the, the message of the cheerful giver from 2 Corinthians 9. But when that was all over, I engaged in the Bible. I started at Matthew and was going to read through the New Testament. And I have to be perfectly honest with you, what I was looking for was a loophole. Because I sensed that Jesus was calling me to something higher than just showing up at church on Sundays. And there's one thing I knew, being a Christian, that there was a heaven and there was a hell, and I was starting to get the sense that I was on the wrong side of that equation. But I did not want to be a disciple. All I wanted to do was go to heaven when I died. So I'm reading, and I'm starting to read Jesus saying things like, you know, you got to lay, if you want to follow, if you lay down your life, take up the cross and follow me. That's just like a reoccurring theme. And, there, and, and I'm reading through, and there was no loopholes. And then I get to John 3, and I hear Jesus talking to Nicodemus about being born again. You must be born again. And I had, ne- I, I had heard about being born again, but I had never heard it in my church. I didn't even know it was in the Bible. And all of a sudden, I'm like, this, this is like an obstacle I have to overcome. So I actually went out of the scriptures, back onto the internet, and started researching what it meant to be born again. And to be perfectly honest with you, I can't say I got the answer when I'm looking backwards, except for the fact that I understood that it was something that had to happen. How? I didn't have a clue. 
And one of the other big fears that I had in this is that ah, the minute I said yes to God, he was going to pack my bags, hand me a ticket to Africa, and I would end up being a missionary in Africa. And you can laugh at that, but that was a real fear of mine. You know, every, every one of us, I bet, has a fear of what God is going to call us to do. And it's probably misfounded. But that was keeping me from saying yes to God. But finally, I, I had been, got through John, got through Acts, was starting into Romans, and I got to Romans 4. And all of a sudden, I just realized I would rather be a missionary in Africa than I'd rather be at home without God and have the risk of going to hell when I died. So when I read these words, now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. And I remember closing up my Bible and saying, okay, God, I get it now. I'll do it your way. And all of a sudden, there was nothing that happened at that very moment in time. I actually thought I was kind of disappointed. You know, I thought there should be some out-of-body experience, but there wasn't. But over the next days and weeks, I did start to experience God's love in my life. You know, you hear it said that uh, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But no longer was it the Bible telling me so. I was starting to experience God's love in my life myself and that that sinking feeling that I felt out on the deck that day was now filled with the love of God and I started to come on fire for Jesus and I started to really grow in my faith and so this was early 2006 that I'd said yes to God and and now by the end of 2006, uh, he had put me into this trucker's ministry at the Petro Travel Plaza. And I was having to study and really grow in Bibles and theology because I thought when I first started this trucker's ministry, it was going to be a bunch of heathens that were coming here. They were just more ignorant than me. But the guys coming to the chapel, were they were on fire for Jesus and they knew their Bibles inside and out. And if I didn't study up hard, they were going to eat me for lunch. And so in that first year, man, I was just really plowing forward and growing in my faith and knowing the word of God. And, and, uh, but then, March 2007, the Lord starts coming down on me. And he tells me that I need to confess the fact that in the mid-80s, I had had an affair and I needed to share that with Lois. And I'm like, Why? Why? This was 20 years ago, and it's never happened since. And why would I have to share that with her and break her heart when it's, it's done and over with? And he had nothing um, to do with my argument. For two weeks, I did battle with the Lord. And I actually laugh when I hear an atheist say there is no God because for two weeks, he made my life miserable. And, and I couldn't sleep at night, and there was this weight on my chest, and there was times I felt like I couldn't even breathe. And so I know there's a God. And finally, he wore me down to the point that said, okay, okay, I'll do it. And the minute that happened, there was like this peace that came rushing in. You know, you, you hear about in the Bible that peace surpasses understanding, and I was now starting to experience that. And then he started putting teaching in front of me that I was going to need to get through this little thing. And I, I'm streaming Faith Talk 1190 uh, and... Chuck Swindoll is on it. He's given a sermon from Ephesians 5, and he's, he's talking about how Christ, men are supposed to love our wives like Christ loved the church, and he's talking about how Christ loved the church so much that he died for the church, and then he just point blank asks this question. Men, 
Do you love your wives so much that you could die for them? And I had to ponder it for just a few seconds because Lois and my life at that point in time was going really good. We were growing in our faith. She had surrendered to Christ yet, but we were still growing. And I said, yeah, I could do that. With, by the grace of God. I remember what happened to Peter, so I wasn't too bold, but... But I, yeah, I could. And so I wrote this all down. He told me, don't tell her face to face because you'll screw it up. So write it all down in a letter. And he gave me almost all the teaching I needed to write this down. And, and it was uh, March, late March 2007. And my Lois had gone to see uh, her sister and I'd prepared all of this. And when she came home, I gave her the letter. And she went in the living room to read it. And I told her, I'll be in the bedroom waiting for you. So when you have any questions or you want to talk... I'll be waiting. And she wasn't very long, and she came into the bedroom and sat down next to me, and she said, I forgive you. I'm like, oh, thank you, Jesus. This is awesome. And our, our marriage picked up right from there and kept going. And then in August of 2007, so Jamie's life is still pretty much a train wreck, and her and my daughter Jenny were living together as roommates, sharing an apartment, and and, but Jenny had come out to the house on a Sunday in August, and she was fishing on the dock, and we were both down on the dock, and they, uh, I could just tell, you know, she was like a lost puppy. Her life just wasn't making any progress. And so when the, the afternoon was getting late, I went up to take a shower, and I got in the shower, and I got down on my knees, and I cried out to the Lord, you got to help my baby you got to help my baby. We've tried everything we know how to do. you got to help my baby. And he answered me. He said, I will. But you got to do something first. got to apologize to her for not raising her up in a godly home. I'm saying, whatever, Lord. I'll do it. But I just didn't want to make it a simple, Jamie, forgive me for not uh, raising you up in a godly home. It needed to be something special. So I decided to prepare a breakfast for her and invite Jamie over and we'd do breakfast together at the house. And, and that's what I did. And we had a wonderful time, father-daughter time together. And at the end of it, I asked, told her what was going on. And I told her I needed to ask her forgiveness for not raising her in a godly home. And she didn't really understand it, but she said, yes, dad, I forgive you. And it was awesome. And But I couldn't just do that for Jamie. I had to do it for Jenny, too. I raised them both the same way. So I prepared a breakfast for Jenny, and we went through the same thing. And Jenny totally didn't understand because she didn't have uh, somebody she babysat for that molested her. And she had friends that were in a different circle that helped keep her uh, on the straight and narrow. So she said, Dad, I had a wonderful childhood. Why are you asking for forgiveness? But I still didn't raise her in a godly home. And after that was all over, the God started to move. And it wasn't in ways that we ever would have thought, but one of the first things that happened was shortly afterwards, Jenny, through circumstances I don't have time to explain, decided that she was going to move to Colorado. And, you know, we didn't want to get in the way of her dreams, so we encouraged that, but it was, it was hard for us because she was not just our daughter. She was an employee of Fearing Satellite and Sound, and now she was moving 1,100 miles away but we still encouraged it because we know we, we wanted her to spread her wings. But that opened up the door for Jamie to move home because she couldn't afford that apartment on her own and she didn't have anybody to really room with, so she moved home. And that opened up the door for us to start talking to her about going to see our pastor. And 
Um, it wasn't long. She finally agreed, and it wasn't long after they met in about 15, 20 minutes of conversation, they decided, yes, you need professional help. And so we started to get her into counseling, and then when she go to get done at the secular counseling center, she'd come and debrief with my pastor, and then he'd do healing prayers on her, and she started to get well and started to get healed. And... Um, they say that it takes about three years of counseling for somebody that's gone through that to get healed. Well, she, within less than a year, her life was starting to get back on track. So fast forward, I said that Lois hadn't been saved. On to April 2008, she answered an altar call on Good Friday and gave her life to Jesus Christ. And then kind of moving fast forward into 2010, which was the most eventful year of our life, probably. We began that year, uh, Lois and I leading a mission trip to Haiti. It was actually planned in 2009. We had no idea there was going to be an earthquake at that time. Um, but the earthquake happened on January 12, 2010. Our uh, trip was planned for February 23rd. And we ended up being one of the first commercial flights into Haiti after the earthquake and got to see a lot of the devastation and the poverty like we'd never experienced before. And through that, it's, that's helped transform our lives and at that same time, we were entered Jamie into Dale Carnegie's 12, uh, 12-week How to Win Friends and Influence People course. And through that, she just started to blossom. And just that just totally... Tra- she was healed, but she had been an introvert all her life. And now she was moving from being a healed introvert to an extrovert. And Jamie's life has just totally been transformed. And she's really a kind of a... We call her our miracle girl. And that same year, uh, June 2010, Jenny, uh, Jamie, Jenny uh, had uh, fallen in love out in Colorado and gotten engaged. And we had their wedding in June at the Wilderness Resort hotel and it was wonderful a very high point in our life and then we went to Colorado to do a reception in July for their uh, for the people who from Colorado who couldn't make it to the June wedding and the important part there is it was after we returned to call from Colorado 2010 had just been so busy that our devotional life with the Lord had kind of taken a back seat. And unbeknownst to each other, Lois and I recommitted ourselves to the Lord when we returned from Colorado. And it wasn't long after that that the Lord started to weigh on Lois's heart, that she had some unfinished business that needed to be taken care of. And so she went to visit our pastor and tell him about what was going on, and he recommends that she go on a retreat and sort it out with the Lord And when she comes home from this retreat, she tells me that she had also had an affair. And of course, she'd forgiven me immediately, so I'm going to be the big guy, and I forgive her immediately. And I don't ask a lot of questions other than what she volunteered right up front. And everything on the surface was good. But a few days later, I'm on my way home from work in Madison, and as I'm driving, I feel the Holy Spirit start pressing in on me that that wasn't good enough. We had some dirty laundry that needed to be taken care of, and we were going to get it done and over with. And so literally, by the time I arrived home, it felt like I was literally being dragged out of my car by the Holy Spirit and pushed into the house. He was not going to let me not do this right then and there. And so I took Lois. We went into the bedroom, and I shared with her who I'd had the affair with, and I started asking her questions. We started getting all of this garbage out. 
And through that, we pieced together that her affair had lasted uh, almost 10 years. And mine had been less than a year. Hers had been actually an emotional attachment. They talked about actually running away together. Mine was purely sexual. And I don't want to excuse myself at all. I'm the problem with all of this. But at the same time, that was like uh, more than I expected. But we went ahead on our 34th wedding anniversary, October 9th, 2010. It was a Saturday night. We actually asked our pastor if we could renew our vows, and we did it in a secret ceremony at the altar at the church and with only Lois and I and our, present, our pastor present because we wanted to commit our lives, our marriage to the Lord that time. It wasn't about her and I. It was about committing that marriage to the Lord. And so we did, and it was wonderful, and, but shortly after that, the whole weight of this affair just started to press on to me. I don't want to, again, minimize it. Adultery next to murder is about the worst that it can happen, and, but when, you, when a woman who's married has, commits adultery and betrays her husband, it's not just a matter of the betrayal. Men have our manly pride. And this was not just a matter of the betrayal. It was destroying my manhood. I no longer felt like a man. And that was weighing on me. And I remember going out to Dallas, Texas for a business trade show. And this was like late October. And I'm out there and the hotel is, I'm staying in my hotel that night. And I just, I'm just wrecked. And I start crying and I'm doing everything during the day to just make up a good face. And But I just started weeping. I got down on my knees in the hotel room and I just started crying out to God and I didn't even know why I was saying it, but I started crying out, I never knew you, I never knew you, I never knew you. But the Lord was present in that room and it was just like I felt his hand on my shoulder saying, I know, I know, it's okay. The other thing that was going on at this very same time is there's this song by Sanctus Real, Lead Me, that's playing on the radio. It's the hit song, and Life 102.5 is playing it over and over and over and over, and, it, and it's tearing me apart because I just look at some of these lyrics. I look around, I see my wonderful life, almost perfect from the outside. I, in picture frames, I see my beautiful wife always smiling, but on the inside, I can hear her saying, Lead me. With strong hands, stand up when I can't. Don't leave me hungry for love, chasing dreams. What about us? Show me you're willing to fight, that I'm still a love of your life. I know we call this a home, but I still feel alone. I see their faces, look in their innocent eyes. They're just children from the outside. I'm working hard. I tell myself they'll be fine. They're independent, but on the inside, I can hear him saying, Lead me with strong hands. Stand up when I can't. Don't leave me hungry for love, chasing dreams. What about us? I'm seeing all my failures in this song and it's playing over and over. And so there was this point where I'm sitting at my desk and and this is also during the Great Recession so our business is in a free fall and Lois and I are now taking money out of our savings to prop up the business and I'm sitting at my desk, this is early November, and I know I'm going to have another breakdown, but I don't want to do it in the office, so I get in my car and I drive down to the Walmart parking lot and found a secluded spot there, and I just let it rip and started crying, started crying out to the Lord, Lord, can I just come home now? Can I just come home? I don't want to do this anymore. It wasn't that I was suicidal, but I really didn't want to live anymore. If I could go home, that would have been all right by me. But I knew that that wasn't the answer, too. 
And I also knew from what my daughter Jamie experienced that there was light on the other side of the tunnel. And so right there in the Walmart parking lot, I picked up my phone and I called the Center for Christian Counseling. And the woman there on the other end of the phone was very, very comforting. And she got me in a couple of days later. And then at the same time, I started going to my pastor. He knew this was coming. He knew from what Lois had told him that this was coming. So I went to him for healing prayers at the same time I was going to the Center for Christian Counseling. And I can't say there was any breakthrough specifically brought by the Center of Christian Counseling except for one thing. They gave me the book, Forgiveness is a Choice. And that book was really where some of the healing started to come. Now, it didn't happen right away because it's a workbook. And I read through the book, but I didn't do the work. And so... There was this cycle going on where I would lash out at Lois, and I didn't even understand quite why, except there was unforgiveness there, and I'd just lash out at her, and then I'd go into these deep depressions for just a matter of an hour where I'd just bawl and bawl and bawl and and total wreck, and then all of a sudden I'd feel some peace, but then a little time would go by and I'd repeat the cycle, lash out at Lois, have a big crying session, feel some peace, and then I knew it couldn't go on like this, so... I decided I need to get into this book and actually do the work of the book. And I remember that it was the night before I had to have a colonoscopy. And it was, the colonoscopy was on this afternoon. Lois couldn't take me to it. They put you, sedate you, and they do it. So I needed somebody to drive me, but she couldn't do it. And that night, of course, you're up all night because you're doing the enema stuff. And I decided that that was the night. And I started doing the work of the book. And I started writing down all of my feelings on paper. And the other thing the book told you to do is see it through the, per- the eyes of the other person. Well, this song was doing a lot of that for me, showing me my failures. But I started writing it. And there was some venomous stuff that I wrote down. It wasn't Christian at all. But, and then when Lois left for work the following morning, I took the opportunity to just get angry and violent out loud. And I started pounding on the furniture of our house and just screaming at the top of my lungs. But it brought peace. And it wasn't long after that that I was able to tell Lois, I totally forgive you. And she said to me, but you said that before. How do I know it's still true? And I, I just said, you've you got to trust me. So, and through all of this mess, a miracle happened, Uh, not just my transformation, but the Lord actually opened up a door for me to be part of my mom getting saved. And my mom had Alzheimer's at the time, and the Lord literally brought my mother back to lucidity for a very short period of time so that she could get right with God. And I got to be right there and be a part of it. And so that was a highlight through going through all of this. And, and at the end of 2011, going into 2012, we literally didn't know if we would be in business at the end of 2012. Things had gotten so bad through the Great Recession. And also because my leadership sucked because of all the things I was going through. But then things in 2012 started to turn around. I, uh, our first grandchild, Dustin, was born. And then in March of 2012, Lois, Jamie, and I had this plan to do a 21-day fast. And our main prayer in that fast was that Jenny and her husband would get saved. And so we prayed and fasted for 21 days. And on March 27th, Lois and Jamie and I got baptized at the River of Life Church. And Jenny came home from Colorado with Dustin. And at that ceremony... Jenny gave her life to Jesus Christ. 
And what was really so awesome about that was after it was all over, Jenny said, I really, I, I gave my life to Christ because I really wanted Dustin to have what you guys wanted to have. And, and my first thought was, well, was that really a true conversion? And the Lord just spoke to me that what Jesus had said, no greater love is a man than this, and he laid down his life for his friend. <laughs> So Jamie, Jenny did it for probably the most noblest reason of all. She gave her life to Christ for her son that he might grow up and know the Lord at some point in time. And I could go on and on and on about what God's done and what God is doing in our lives. But the point is, is that God uh, has been so good to us and been so faithful. But I also have to say that we have been obedient. When he's told us to do things, we've done them. And through that, our faith has grown and God has done amazing work in our lives. But I got to move on because there's lessons I learned from this that everyone can benefit. And the first lesson learned is that you were created by God for God, that your life is to glorify God. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We were created for good works that God planned. And I do want to clarify this whole good works thing, because sometimes we can take that wrong. We think that we got to go out and save the world. I was just at the Global Leadership Summit on Thursday and Friday that was televised at the Upper House, and that's all about raising up leaders that are going to change the world. And that's all well and good, but you want to make sure you have your house in order. And so my first thing for good works is that for those of you who are married, those good works must begin with your marriage. And for those of you who are single, it must be lived in celibacy while you're waiting for the right guy to or a right woman to arrive. And that one should be a Christian. You should be equally yoked. Then it must follow into your family. One of the things that happened at this uh, Global Leadership Summit, oh, I'm going to, I jumped ahead, but it must follow you into the workplace. Christians should be known as the best employees possible. Employers should be out looking for Christians because they have this reputation for being great, outstanding employees. And it must be built in the community of the church. Spiritual and faith development is supposed to happen inside in community, and the best place that that community is, exists is in the church. And then after that, if God places something on your heart, go for it. But make sure you have your house in order before you go chasing dreams like I did. This is, I, I, I could do a complete thing just on marriage and I don't have the time, but this triangle kind of tells it all. You've probably seen it before, but the, if you and your wife are going closer to God, then you are going to go closer together. And one of the other things that happened at the Global Leadership Summit was there was this millennial there, Jason Dorsey, president of this genetics, generational kinetics, and he's talking about millennials, and he said the number one trend that shapes generations, parenting. And then he said, we're always complaining about millennials, and of course he's one of them, and he actually agrees to some extent, but he reminds us that entitlement is a learned behavior. So, men, I'm talking mostly to you because spiritual uh, growth of a family is supposed to be led by the men. 
So you train up your child in the way they should go and they will not depart from it. They may stray, but they'll come back. And this is the big one for me. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your might. And the words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. It doesn't say your Sunday school teacher should teach them diligently to your children. It doesn't say your pastor should do the teaching. It says you shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk on your way and when you lie down and when you rise. You don't want to have to apologize to your children like God asked me to do. Actually, God told me to do. So, but before you can glorify God with your life, you have to be a child of God. And for that to happen, you must be born again. John Wesley put it this way. John Wesley, if you don't know, is the 17th, the 18th century um, theologian who started the Methodist church. He said, any, if any doctrines within the whole compass of Christianity may be properly termed fundamental, there are two doubtless these, there are two doubtless these two. The doctrine of justification by faith and that of the new birth. The former relating to the great work which God does for us in forgiving our sins. The latter to the great work which God does in us in renewing our fallen nature. You must be born again. Now I put together, this. Uh, many of you may have seen a similar illustration. This is called the bridge diagram. It's used in evangelism. But I kind of tweaked it a little bit to include the new birth in there. And um, I spent 49 years of my life on the left side of this equation. Now I will tell you that I thought I was a Christian. One of the most biggest deceptions that the devil plays on us is to allow us to think that we really are Christians when we're not. And so I'm living on the left side of this most of my life. I'm 63 now, so it's only 15 years I've been walking with Jesus. And I'm a child of the devil. I'm a slave to sin. I'm living this false reality, chasing dreams that are my dreams, not God's dreams for me. And if I'd have died in that state, I'd have perished into eternal death. And then over on the right side, you could be a child of God, slaves to righteousness that's Sin will have no more power over you, and you can live God's true purpose, find your divine design, and when you die, you can go to heaven. And be, but between these, there's this huge chasm, uh, chasm that no human being can cross without divine intervention. And that divine intervention happens when you put your faith and trust completely and only in Jesus Christ. And when that happens, this bridge will drop down and give you a pathway to the other side. And it's not just a matter of heaven and hell. It's a matter of your whole destiny, divine destiny that you're going to take with you into heaven is wrapped up on the right side of the equation. So justification by faith leads to the new birth. So my question, my challenge to you is, are you born again? Now, I will tell you that if you don't know, then you probably aren't. Because the Bible's very clear about this, that you should have assurance of your salvation. You've heard the song, Blessed Assurance. These are some verses that confirm it. It says that you may know that you have eternal life, 1 John 5, 13. And the one that John Wesley likes to hang his hat on 
is Romans 8, 16 through 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Do you have blessed assurance? If you don't, you still may be stuck on the left side of the chasm. So what do you do? (laughs) What do you do? Well, you've got to recognize that you can't cross the chasm on your own, that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And that Savior, you need to be willing to turn from your sins and false belief in trying to earn eternal life. And you need to believe, truly believe that Jesus died on the cross for you, not just for the world, but for you. It needs to become personal. And that he rose to be your living Savior. And you need to look unto Jesus, receive him into your life, and believe what he says and follow him only. Now, I'm not a big believer that a prayer is going to save you. It's really not about the prayer. It's about the matter of the heart. But John Wesley did write an incredible prayer at the end of a sermon that he wrote called, entitled The New Birth. And this is that prayer. It says, Lord, add to this all thy blessings. Let me be born again. Deny whatever you please, but deny not this. Let me be born from above. Take away whatsoever seems good to you, reputation, fortune, friends, health. Only give me this, to be born of the Spirit, to be received among the children of God. Let me be born not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which lives and abides forever. And then let me grow daily in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you need to pray a prayer to make this real, I can't think of a better one than this. And I'll leave it up there until the band comes up, but I am done. Thank you.